for Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. This week, our guest is the renowned best-selling author, Gretchen Rubin, who's authored numerous books, including The Happiness Project, which has sold over two million books, which is insane in the book world. She's also the host of the wildly popular podcast, Happier, and the author of the new book, Outer Order, Inner Calm. Gretchen Rubin, welcome to On Leadership. I'm so happy to be talking to you. I mean, Gretchen, you have so many accolades, right? I mean, you've sold over three million books. You've been interviewed by Oprah. You've been an answer to a Jeopardy question. I mean, that's sort of arcane, but that's pretty cool. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, I didn't get to see it live, but um, as soon as it aired, all, a bunch of my readers and listeners uh, started flooding me with congratulatory emails. I was like, what's going on? And I did manage to see a clip of it on TV. So, um, yeah, that was a big... Uh, that was a very surreal experience, yeah. I mean, that's just currency for dinner parties you can't escape, right? That's just good for life. Yes, it sure is. Everybody knows Jeopardy. Hey, so I want to talk today mostly about Outer Order, Inner Calm, your newest book, but I also want to touch on your podcast and also the book, The Happiness Project. So The Happiness Project is on everybody's shelf, or at least three million or two million shelves. Talk a little bit about why you wrote The Happiness Project, what you learned from that, and really the impact it's had on countless people in terms of their own quest for happiness. Well, I got the idea to write The Happiness Project, or the idea to do a happiness project in a very inconspicuous moment of my life. I was stuck on a crowded city bus in the pouring rain, and I had one of those rare moments of reflection that often we don't get in sort of the tumult of everyday life. And I thought, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, I want to be happy. And I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or how I could be happier. And I thought, well, I should have a happiness project. And I ran out the next day to the library, got a giant stack of books about happiness and started reading and to try to find out what is happiness? Can we make ourselves happier? Uh, what does the research say? What, is, uh, what do ancient philosophers say? And at first it was just for me, I wanted to do a happiness project for myself, but then the subject became so endlessly fascinating to me that at a certain point I was like, wow, maybe I should write a book about this. Um, and then it was sort of the structure of it, I think is something that's appealed to a lot of people, which is I figured out 12 areas of my life where I thought I could be happier. Um, everything from work to marriage to eternity. Um, and I gave myself a handful of concrete manageable resolutions to try in that area to see, could I make myself happier if I got more sleep or you know, a million other things? And, um, and I think that's, that's kind of an approach that, that feels manageable to people and concrete. And so I think a lot of the popularity of the book has been the people read about me, but it's like, it's really, they read about themselves and they're like, I could try this or that doesn't appeal to me because she really likes to read. I don't really like to read that much, but I really like to go for bike rides. So maybe I'll adapt the kind of thing she's talking about for her passion, for my passion. Um, so I think that's I think that's why it kind of caught people's imagination is that it, it felt like something that they could adapt for themselves and try in their own lives. You know, whether you like it or not, which I'm sure you appreciate it, your brand will always be attached to the happiness project. Do you find there's a little bit of weight on you that people expect you to always be happy and be evangelizing happiness? And do you ever just want to be a curmudgeon and not have people know it? <laughs> 
Well, I have to say, I feel perfectly uh, ready to be a curmudgeon at any time. So I don't feel any personal pressure to be happy, you know, 24-7. And actually, it's quite delightful to be associated with happiness. I mean, yeah. of all the subjects um, to kind of chase you around, right. um, that is, that's a very, that's a very enjoyable one. I, I, if I had to say, what is my subject? My subject is human nature. So I've written about habit formation. I've written about the four tendencies, which is a personality framework that I developed. So I'm really always exploring human nature. But with a lot of things, say with ha habits, the point of habits is to have a happier, healthier, more creative, more productive life. So they're, they all very much go together. They're very complementary. And, and always coming back to this idea of happiness um, really does, I think, help guide my thinking because it's, or like my new book, Outer Order, Inner Calm. It's like, well, why are we doing this in the first place? It's because in some way we think it's going to make us happier. So. Uh, so no, I, I I'm really happy that I am I am uh, I am kind of personally associated with the idea of happiness. Well, the Very Happiness lucky. Project is extraordinary. You can see behind me, I picked my 250 sort of favorite leadership books a year ago. It has a place on the wall, so it gets some great press every week here in the set. Ooh, and I've read many of those books. I recognize many of those those covers for my own shelves. So I yeah. think you and I have read have a lot of the same favorites. It's a lot of the same interest too. Yeah. Uh, how did you make the transition from writing about happiness and other books in between to your new book, Outer Order, Inner Calm? What was the inspiration for this new book? Well, you know, I have been writing and reading and talking to people about happiness and good habits and all those related issues for years now. And one thing that just always puzzled me and struck me was that, you know, people would be talking about many things related to happiness, important things like how do we engage more deeply with the people we love? How do we find more time to read? How do we know ourselves better? And people would be very engaged and very interested. But when the subject turned to something about like decluttering or organizing, people kind of got fired up. There was this emotional charge to it um, that to me seemed a little bit irrational. Like, why is it that cleaning out a coat closet or cleaning out your desk just makes people feel so exhilarated? Um, a friend said to me, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. And I thought, I know exactly how that feels, why? Um, I think that there's something disproportionate about the kind of gain in energy and a sense of po possibility and a sense of focus that we get from getting outer order. And so I really wanted to shine a spotlight on why that might be. And also given that not for everyone, but for most people, there is this connection between outer order and inner calm. What are the ways that we can go about creating outer order and then maintaining outer order, um, given that controlling our surroundings does seem to give us a lot more self-mastery? So Gretchen, we'll get to a few of those practical tips around creating inner calm with our order. But taking a step back, what have you learned in your interviews and your research and your writings and your podcast around why are we so attached to stuff and material items? And is there any insights that you might share with all of us that probably have too much stuff or more stuff than we need? What human condition insights would you give us around the role that stuff plays in our lives? Well, it's interesting, you know, some people want to say stuff doesn't matter, things aren't important, get rid of it all, you'll feel better with nothing. Um, to me, this is not the common experience of mankind. Um, we value our possessions. We use them to project our identity into our environment. Um, we use them to remind us of the people and places and activities that we love. Um, some people love simplicity and don't want that many things around them, but some people love abundance. They have great appreciation for the beauty of objects, the craftsmanship of objects. 
um, the aesthetic pleasure that they can get from objects. Um, we use them as a way to uh, like give ourselves kind of a, a little quest. Um, I'm going to Paris and when I'm in Paris, I'm gonna find, uh, you know, I'm gonna buy a postcard of my very favorite piece of art. And that is something that's fun for me. It's a way to kind of claim something. Um, and so I think that, uh, it, it, I think to dismiss the emotional power of objects is, is to kind of uh, ignore something that's very real. Um, but, but given that that's the case, I think we can take that into account as we manage our objects, because it's true that many people feel very swamped by possessions. They would feel better if they got rid of the possessions that were, didn't, weren't meaningful to them. That's a whole process. That's what I talk about in Outer Order, Inner Calm. Um, but some people will be just be left with many more possessions. That's what they want. Um, I remember I went to a friend, a friend who loves beautiful clothes, and she was very apprehensive. And she said, I feel like you're going to try to give, make me give away too much. And I said, no, no, no. It's not about getting you to a capsule wardrobe. It's about getting rid of the things you don't wear, you don't like, you don't use, that don't fit. Like, that's not adding any value to your life. Like, let's get rid of that, and you can be more engaged with what you have. Um, but, uh, but possessions do have an important role to play. Gifts have a very important role to play. Even if you don't want a gift, like somebody's giving you something you, you don't even want, still that act of giving and receiving, very important um, in human relationships. So we need to respect it and, and, and think about what it's, what's really going on. Um, even if we end up with some like giant purple platter that we uh, that we don't want, <laughs> which is, then is annoying to deal with. I have one. It's red. I can't seem to get rid of it. I don't know why. I know. <laughs> Mine's yes, red. I know. But it, but it embodies someone's affection for you. It does. That. It was actually a wedding gift from a dear friend, and it matches nothing in our home. But I will never get rid of it or the other seventy probably wedding gifts that were given to me because people were you know it was heartfelt. Well, you could take a picture of it and hold on to the memory oh. and give away the platter because the platter's already served its function huh. because it's been the embodiment of someone's uh, affection for you. So you don't really need to keep the platter. That's one way I would I would argue you could think about it. Oh, I like because that idea. Already, I'll have to have a garage sale in a different city. It's a little destiny already <laughs> for you. <laughs> I'm cured. Uh, Gretchen, the book is very practical, right? It's like 200 and something pages. Each page kind of has a different tip on it. It's one of those sit it down, read it in one setting or come back and forth to it. In the beginning, you have a fairly fundamental kind of a question to ask. Consider the three big questions of clutter. Do I need it? Do I love it? Do I use it? Walk us through those. Yeah, because we, we all need sort of a heuristic in order to decide what to keep and what to relinquish. Um, famously, Marie Kondo says, does it spark joy? Um, and this is another approach if, uh, if, you, if you're looking for a way to make decisions, because a huge reason that we have clutter in the first place is because of decision fatigue. It's too hard to decide whether to, should I keep this piece of paper or should I recycle or shred this piece of paper? I don't want to have to make a, like go through the process of making that decision, so I'm just going to keep it. But then all this stuff just mounts up, mounts up, because you're just keeping everything and not making those decisions as you go. So when you're getting ready to decide, do you need it? Do you use it? Do you love it? If you don't need it, use it, or love it, why do you have it? Um, that is the core. You know, you're like, this cord could be useful. And it's like, well, but you don't know what it goes to. Uh, you haven't used it in three years. You didn't even realize it was there until just now. Like, you don't need it. You don't use it. You don't love it. The platter, do you need it? No. Do you use it? No. Do you love it? No. Why are you keeping it? Well, you're keeping it out of affection for someone else. Or Take guilt. a picture of it, <laughs> hold on to the affection, and let go of the item. 
So I think this is this is a very helpful kind of process yeah. to think about. And sometimes we love things that we don't really need or use. I have some stuff in my house that I'm just like, I just love it. I think we have room in our hearts and our homes for some things like that. But for the most part, you know, there's a lot we can get rid of. Now, Gretchen, I see behind you a little peach piece of paper sticking out behind that yellow folder back there. I would expect it to be right in order in your house. <laughs> what's, your ha what's your home like? Oh, that's actually a, uh, it, it, that's what it looks like, but it's actually a uh, file stand. Oh, okay, got it, that's got the it. Out, that's the outer part of a file stand, so it's hard holding some, those are like my active files. <laughs> um, What's your wait, home like? Wait, so how orderly is my house? Yeah. Uh, you know, here's an interesting thing. When it comes to outer order, some people really want to get to an extreme place. Like, they want a binder with, you know, printed out labels in matching fonts, like all lined up on a on on a, on their 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 office shelf. Or there are people who want all the jars in the kitchen to match, and there's no boxes, and you know, they want to get to a place where it really looks great. That isn't important to me. I just don't want to dig through a bunch of junk. So if you looked in my house, you'd be like, it doesn't look that doesn't, it's not like something somebody would put on Instagram. Like I don't have matching hangers, for instance, cause I'm like, I get free hangers from the store. I'm not gonna like, I'm just gonna reuse those hangers. Um, and for some people, you know, they want that like very, that very kind of unified, neat look. Um, but I have to say, there's not a lot of just, there's not like shelves where things are crammed in and there's not neglected areas where it's like, what's under the guest room bed? It's like, I know what's under there. Like, I know exactly what, I know where everything is in my house, which I'm one of these people, and I think some people have a different tolerance for this, but I really dislike spending time looking for misplaced items. Research suggests that the average American spends 55 minutes a day looking for misplaced items. I mean, that is a huge amount of time. Think what you could do with 55 minutes. I really, for some reason, very much dislike that feeling of like, you know, where is that, where's that set of, you know, pinking shears? I don't even know what pinking shears are, but whatever it is, you know, oh, where's my three-hole punch? Do we have a three-hole punch in the house? Where is that three-hole punch? I know exactly where the three-hole punch is. So, and that, so that's very important to me for, so a lot of my orderliness is about getting rid of things we don't need, don't use, don't love, and then not just putting things down, but putting things away so that I know if I need to get the things, the adapters to where we're traveling internationally so that we can plug in our phone to a different current, where are those converters? I know exactly where they are. I like that feeling very much. So Gretchen, you say your house may not be pin, Pinterest worthy. It yes. is though, because a few months ago, your home in Manhattan was featured in a couple page spread in the Architectural Digest magazine. And I remember being captivated, kind of getting a glimpse into your life, thinking, where is this stuff and how is it organized? I got to think there's been some uh, social chatter about the interest in your own home and your own life. Well, I think people are always interested to see what people's environments look like. Yeah, um, and yeah it, it, it's fun. Uh, now, that was not like featuring my utility closet, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Which is where I think a lot of people, it's like, oh, what does your pantry look like? What does your coat closet look like? Um, it would be funny to have like the the true reveal of what's happening behind the scenes. Um, yeah, but it's 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 pretty it's pretty clutter free. But if there's a lot going on, I think maybe people were surprised. Um, I am a simplicity lover, but on the other hand, like I like us like I, I we have tons and tons and tons of books, um, which give rooms a, a certain kind of feel. Um, so yeah. That was yeah. that, definitely an evidence. Let's talk about in outer order, inner calm. You mentioned something you call the four tendencies. You've also written a book about this. Upholders, yes. obligers, 
rebellers and the questioner. Walk us through those and how we can identify with those and the roles those play in creating inner calm for us. Yes, this is a personality framework that I came up with. And what it does is it looks at a narrow but very significant aspect of your nature, which is how you respond to expectations. Um, and we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations like a work deadline and inner expectations like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. Um, so I can, I'll briefly describe them and most people can tell what they are just from a brief description. But if you want to take a quiz and like get a little report on the tendency, you can take the quiz at quiz.gretchenrubin.com. Like 2 million people have taken this quick free quiz. But like I say, a lot of times people just can diagnose themselves very easily. Um, so upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline. They meet the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Hmm. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they always want justifications. Um, they resist anything arbitrary or inefficient or unjustified. So they're making everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner expectation, they'll do it, no problem. If it fails their inner standard, um, they, will, they will push back. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my insight into this, this tendency when a friend said to me, when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, no problem. Going on her own was a struggle. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. Uh, they can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't like to tell themselves what to do. Like, they wouldn't sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturdays. Because when they wake up on Saturday, they just want to do it. They want to be spontaneous. They don't know what they're going to feel like doing. And just the fact that somebody's expecting them to show up will annoy them. So those, those are the four tendencies. Um, and it comes up a lot with anything like outer order because it's sort of, the question is how do you get yourself to do the things you want to do or you know, more fun, how do you get somebody else to do what you want them to do? And taking into account the four tendencies can be very helpful. Gretchen, take it to the next level in the book. Uh, following the four tendencies, you then talk about identifying as being um, either an overbuyer or an underbuyer. Talk about those two concepts and how it helps to understand which you might be and how to make that relate to better calm in your life. So some people are neither overbuyers nor underbuyers, but um, I, for one, am a very serious underbuyer. Um, that's why I don't have matching hangers, for one thing. Um, so underbuyers are people who tend to, they really don't like to shop, they don't like to buy, they don't like the moment of purchase. Um, they often will postpone purchases um, past the point where it makes sense. Like they won't buy mittens until January. Um, they often don't like highly specialized products. Like I only recently made my piece with facial tissue with Kleenex because I was like, why don't people can just blow their noses in toilet paper? Like I don't understand like why we, we need a special item for this. Um, and you might think that underbuyers wouldn't have clutter because they don't like to buy things, but they often have clutter because they hang on to things because the idea of having to go out and buy something is so loathsome to them. So it's like, yeah, I have this red platter that I got for my wedding 15 years ago, and I never used that thing, but 
one day it might be that I would really need a red platter and I like, what would I do then? So I better hang on to everything for fear that I might have to go out and buy it. So underbuyers have to remind themselves, go ahead and get what you need. Don't wait too long. And if you're not, you, if you don't need, use or love something, go ahead and get rid of it. Like you, you will be able to deal with it down the road if the need should arise, which obviously often you, you never need it. So don't worry about that so much. Then there are overbuyers and overbuyers are people who love, they love, they tend to love to buy. They love, tend to love to prepare. So it's like, I'm going to France. Here's 15 things I might need or it, winter's coming. Like what could I possibly need? Um, they often buy in anticipation. They often buy large stores of things like of slow moving items like toothpaste or canned soup. Um, and you can see more easily why overbuyers might have clutter because they just have a lot of things that they then have to, they have to find a way to store them. They have to find a way to keep track of them. You know, oh, like an overbuyer, oh, I'm going to buy a birthday present for someone. I don't even know who this is a birthday present for. So I buy it. Now it's on the shelf. I have to remember, oh, I have this thing. You know, so they, they tend to create a lot of clutter just because of their overbuying. Um, and once you know if you're an overbuyer or an underbuyer, you can sort of counterbalance it. So an underbuyer can say like, hey, I probably am going to need those gloves eventually. Why don't I just go ahead and get them right now so I can enjoy them for the whole summer, the whole winter instead of waiting. And an overbuyer can say, you know what? I could store that at the store for now. That I might need that thing, but I'm going to store it at the store until I decide like, do I actually need um, – you know, to buy this birthday present or to buy this like fancy um, ice scraper for my windshield. I'll wait and see if the need arises. So Gretchen, get practical. Uh, there has to be uh, a collection of easy to do implement tasks in our home that everybody probably is facing. I'm gonna guess most people's home is like mine. It's very clean, but it's also very cluttered in drawers and I have, you know, probably 12 eye Apple chargers and seven scissors and nine hammers and I can only find one at a given time. Is there any sort of like practical advice you would say, start with this and tackle that and then move to this? Things that are fairly ubiquitous for everyone to create some more inner calm in their home, in their car, in their office? Uh, well, one thing that, um, that many people talk about is like they're too busy. You know, like they've got so much going on. The idea that they could take a Saturday or a weekend to deal with it, like that's just, that's not very realistic. So there's ways though that you can start to tackle the the mess um, as you go. So one way is the one minute rule, which is that anything you can do in less than a minute, do without delay. If you can go ahead and hang up your coat, if you can rip open a letter, scan the contents and realize you can put in the recycling, go ahead and do that. And that gets rid of this kind of scum of clutter that's on the surface of life that can slow us down. Um, Another one kind of related is power hour. And power hour is like a lot of a lot of times we have little tasks that mount up and kind of create disorder. Like, oh, I've got these shoes that need to be rehealed. So I'm going to put them on the kitchen counter by the coffee machine so that I remember to take them to the shoe place. But then months go by and then I just have a pair of shoes sitting on my kitchen counter. That feels like disorder. Um, so power hour is you keep a list of this and then for one hour, once a week, you just start tackling those items. And what you find is that we often um, over uh, overvalue what we could do. We overestimate what we could do in a short amount of time, like an afternoon or a weekend. And we underestimate what we could do in little bits of time if we do them consistently, you know, sort of over the long term. So things like one minute rule and power hour, actually, you pretty quickly start to see a major difference. And yet you're not taking that much time out of your busy life. It's very helpful for people to remember it's easy to, easier to catch up than to, to keep up. Um, 
it's easier to keep up than to catch up. So if you, you know, sometimes you think like, oh, well, sure, I'll clean out this huge mess. But a week from now, it's going to be right back where it was. Why should I even bother? Well, one thing is it's it, there. Uh, messy areas tend to get messier and tidy areas tend to stay tidy. So if you do deal with these like clutter magnets that we all have in our house and in our offices, if you then really just try to maintain that, it, it, it's easier than you might expect if you just stay on it. Same thing with your office. Like I, every every night I do a 10 minute closer where for 10 minutes at the end of my day, I just, I put papers back in files. I put the pen back in the pen cup. I throw away my trash. I, you know, look and see if I need to create a new to-do list. I put books back on the shelf. And not only does this help me transition from my work day to my, to my leisure day, um, cause it's kind of a little transition. It also, it's much more pleasant to leave my office. And then more importantly, when I come in in the morning, I'm not fighting my way through the detritus of all of yesterday's junk. I have kind of a, you know, I have that feeling of like, okay, I'm ready to sit down and focus because everything is, um, is nicely put away and is easy to find. If I, if I need a piece of paper, like, oh, I know where that piece of paper is. It's in the file for May. There it is. Gretchen, this discussion now reminds me of a phrase you coined in the book called clutter magnets. Talk about that. Yeah. So clutter magnets, I think most people are familiar with this phenomenon. It's that there's certain areas in your home or your office that stuff just seems to accumulate. Like, you know, when you're not, no one's even home and the pile is getting bigger. It's often the top of a chest of drawers um, near a front door or a chair near a front door, a kitchen counter or the kitchen table or the dining room table. When I was growing up, that's where our clutter magnet was, was our dining room table. Um, in, my, in your office, is there one kind of counter area where everything just seems to mount up? And if you really pay special attention to these clutter magnets um, and really try to keep them cleared off and don't let that mass up, um, it's much easier to maintain order. And you may even want to do something, if you, like let's say you're in a household and everybody in the family, you keep saying to people, don't put stuff on this chair, put your stuff away, and yet they keep doing it. One thing you can do is you can sort of disrupt the habit um, like if it's a kitchen counter, you can put a vase there so that people really can't avail themselves of that. Um, that's one thing to try, but it's really staying on top of it, um, not letting things pile up because what can happen, um, and you see this particularly in an office, if you have a clutter magnet that you have left unattended for a while, it can start being really disruptive to your work because you start not being able to find things and there's nothing more frustrating than realizing like, oh, I better bring the agenda to this meeting that starts in five minutes. And like, where is it? I know I printed it out or I know somebody gave it to me, but I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, time is ticking. I don't want to be late, but I don't want to show up empty handed. It's just very frustrating. And it's needlessly frustrating with like a little bit of investment of order. We can save ourselves a lot of hassle. Gretchen, in addition to being a prolific writer, you also host that insanely popular podcast. I think it's called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Talk to our listeners and watchers around what your topics are in the podcast and how someone can, can subscribe. Well, you can subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts and it's free. Sometimes people think if you subscribe, you have to pay, but no, it's completely right. free. Right. Um, if you don't know how to listen to a podcast, if you go to, I created a little, like a little hand, uh, handout. If you go to giftofpodcast.com, and enter your email, it'll give you like a cheat sheet on how to subscribe. It's super easy, but it's like like anything, you need somebody to show you how to do it. Um, but Happier with Gretchen Rubin is a weekly podcast. I co-host it with my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who is a very successful um, 
TV writer and showrunner in Los Angeles. So she has a very different life for me, a very different personality for me. Um, and we every week we talk about it, try this at home, which is a concrete manageable tip that you can try at home uh, to make yourself happier, healthier, more productive, more creative. We always include a happiness hack, which is like a funny little easy thing. Like it might be an app or something you buy or some kind of like trick that people have figured out um, as a way to get like a quick fix of happiness. Um, we talk about know yourself better questions because I think knowing ourselves is like a crucial aspect to happiness. We talk about happiness stumbling blocks. We answer questions. Um, so each week we, we tackle different aspects of happiness, which of course is a tremendously broad subject that encompasses so many subtopics within it. Um, there's a lot that most people can do, a lot of low hanging fruit for all of us, I think. Um, for ways to be happier, if we think about it, if we have something pointed out, a lot of times you think, you know, I could do that. I could, that that's completely possible for me. Let me try that. So we're trying to give people lots of ideas. Beyond that cool podcast with your sister, you also do something fun on your Facebook page. I think it is each Monday morning. You mentioned you're a prolific reader. Talk about the photos that you post on, on Mondays on Facebook. Yeah, so I love to read. I'm a huge reader. And um, so every uh, every Monday, I post the books that I have read that week. And, um, and I just post a photo of a stack of books with no comment. Um, but one thing is uh, that I talk about a lot is um, one way that I keep my reading level high is that if I don't like a book, I don't finish it. So if you see that it's in my stack, that means that I liked it well enough to finish it. And then once a month, I will make I make a list of all the books that I read that month, and I post it, and I and there's a newsletter people can sign up for where they get this. And there I write a sentence or two about what, what, you know, what kind of book it is and, uh, and what I thought of it. Um, and this is really fun. I think, I think a lot of people, one of the things that's been really interesting for me as somebody who writes a lot about habits is that the, the desire to read more consistently is something that many, many people feel. Um, a lot of people want to find more time to read and they seem to find seeing just this kind of, weekly parade of, of book jackets to be kind of a good reminder. Um, and, and sometimes people will say, oh, I read that or I want to read that. That's reminding me that that's on my list. Um, it's fun for me to see how people respond to the list. Um, and it's fun, to, uh, it's, it's, fun to, it's fun to shine a little spotlight on the books that I'm enjoying. Gretchen, a little bit of a personal question. Rewind a bit. I believe you went to Yale undergraduate and Yale Law School. And then you yes. ended up with the fortunate uh, appointment of clerking for then Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. What was that experience like? I mean, it's extraordinary. It was such a uh, rare honor um, to be a clerk um, for Justice O'Connor. Um, the Supreme Court is an astonishing institution. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I'm not a lawyer anymore, but I'm very happy that I went to law school. And, I, and, and then certainly that was one of the highlights of my professional life was the year that I spent clerking. So what's next for you? You've just authored this new book. What's the horizon look like in Rubin Enterprises? Yeah, well, I think that I'm going to write a book. I'm still in the th in the throes of book tour. And one thing about a book tour is it's hard to right. think about your next book because you're still so, uh, I'm still so uh, consumed with uh, the book that just came out, Outer Order, Intercom. But my next book, it's going to be about the five senses in some way. I'm very interested in the body. I went through a big period of being like very preoccupied with color. I like wrote this weird little book called My Color Pilgrimage, which I want to figure out what to do with. I'm very interested in, I've been interested in scent and the, the power of the sense of smell ever since I wrote my book, Happier at Home. Um, I'm very interested in pain. 
um, the role that expectation plays in our in what we experience. Um, so I'm getting very excited to tackle that new subject. A whole all new areas of the library have become activated for me, so I can't wait to dive in. Magic. I don't really understand why the theory of magic plays into this, but I, I have a strong sense that I have to learn a lot about magic. So I'm very eager to get going. Make room for your shelf for Gretchen's next five books <laughs> coming out soon. Outer Order, Inner Calm by Gretchen Rubin. Highly recommend it. It'll be on the wall in our studio shortly. Gretchen, thank you for joining us on Leadership. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for your time as well. Remember, you can subscribe to On Leadership, now the world's largest and fastest growing newsletter dedicated to leadership, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. Comes out every Tuesday morning via email to your inbox. It includes an interview just like the one today from Gretchen, as well as a tool you can download from Franklin Covey's Mini Solutions and a blog that I write on an insight that I learned from the interview. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week on Leadership.